This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, SiriusXM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design. I'm really thrilled to welcome to the show, show joining me now via Zoom, Michael Praisman, who's the founder and CEO of Everlane. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Really excited to be here, Carl. Uh, excited to jump in and uh, talk a little bit about entrepreneurship, innovation, what's happening in the world today, and wherever we can. Great. Well, let's let's first uh, plug your company. So Everlane is just everlane.com. Great domain, everlane.com. So if you're someplace safe and at a browser, you can you can check out the company while we chat. So Michael, tell us what Everlane's all about. Ooh, loaded one. Um, you know, we started the business about nine years ago, and it was really just a small group of us, four or five. And I'm one of those, the few, the proud that grew up in the Bay Area and very much rooted in this idea, unbeknownst to me, of how do you create a more equitable world? How do you create more openness rooted in the idea of nature? It's something about the California spirit and that West Coast mentality of going West and pioneering a better world. And after spending a few years thinking private equity might be a good gig, I realized that you know, for me, the, the passion is really starting businesses or operating them. And so I took a year off. And in that time, I, it was really a how do we champion better and um, more equity. And I saw this sort of unique space within retail where there was so much discrepancy between what the consumer understood, what brand to be, and how the brand operated. And it felt like at that time, we could offer um, a better way to build a retail company, a better way to build a brand and produce clothes, and actually use that as a way to champion um, what we've sort of coined as transparency or radical transparency. And so we launched our first t-shirt at the end of, you know, call it nine years ago, at the end of 2011, early 2012, with this promise of showing people what the cost structure is. And through that, we've really built and championed the idea of transparency in three key pillars. So people can see the cost of the product. They can actually see where it's made and inside the factories rather than saying imported. And then they can take one step uh, further and really start to understand the sustainability um, in our promises. And so with each of these endeavors, it's always been an avenue towards if we were to build this from scratch, if we were to build this for the future um, and rethink a brand what would be the right thing to do for people on the planet? And that's been our guiding principle. All right. Well, that's, you're, you're, a, you're an entrepreneur philosopher. So that's a very uh, deep and thoughtful explanation of what the business is about at a, at a really basic level. Uh, what do you guys do? What's the job you do in society? We make, we make clothes and we sell them for more than we bought. Them All for right. More than we right. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Okay. So, so tell us, you mentioned discrepancies and lack of transparency. Give us some examples of that. So let's start with that t-shirt as an example. Uh, just take us into the weeds a little bit. What, what are examples of the 
discrepancies and lack of transparency and, and what is it that you make transparent? Yeah, there's a couple different ways to think about it. The first is you can buy a t-shirt surprisingly for $250 or you can buy a t-shirt for $5. And you don't really know what the difference is. You just assume it's different, right? Because of the brand and their quality and their structure. And then you don't really know where it's made. So it turns out that if you bought that $5 t-shirt um, in 2013, it could have been made in Rana Plaza that collapsed. So you don't really know how they're treating their equity workers. You don't know how they're treating their factory workers. You don't know if the cotton came from a place that is experiencing some sort of slave labor um, from a materials end. And then even from that, you also don't know what are the pesticides used in the cotton? What are the, uh, where is it being um, actually, is it organic? Is it not? Um, what sort of dyes are being used in it? So there's all these different ways that any product, any physical product can either uh, cause harm to people, cause harm to the planet, or just not even you know know what the markup is. Sometimes a markup on something can be a cost five dollars, and they can mark it up ten times, or they can mark it up three times, and you're still getting the same product in the end. So what we wanted to do is really allow the customer to make the decision, um, and so that's where pricing transparency was born. That's where ethical factory transparency was born, and that's now where we're moving into sustainability transparency. All right, so that's really. Uh, two categories, kind of two buckets of, of, of opaqueness, one related to what we academics might call externalities, environmental and social problems that are caused by production. And the other is markups and profit, profit margins. Um, and I guess on the, on the first is maybe a little wonkish of a question, but why, why doesn't regulation, I mean, it, it, child labor and and environmental problems is that because of the lack of level playing field globally in terms of regulation Ooh, so the question is like how, how does that happen and why isn't it just the yeah. same for everyone well every country has different standards first and foremost so what is okay in bangladesh is not going to be okay in the u.s is not going to be is going to be different than in vietnam so i think yeah. you can move pieces around from that perspective because different countries are on different pathways in terms of industrialization so that's one piece of it two there aren't really you know any sort of real regulations in a lot of places around the environment uh, and so that that allows people to make decisions and i think what we're seeing a lot of in, in, in both of these territories is that governments aren't always setting the standards fast enough. And yep. people are starting to demand more, businesses are starting to push more. And so governments are sort of following suit there rather than leading. Um, and so I, what I hope is that businesses like ours and others set the stage and others follow from there. Yeah, well, you know, I, I guess, a. Uh... A question I'd ask, I, I've, I've started one environmentally or oriented business, and, and I also served at my own university on a committee that looked at the sourcing practices for our apparel in terms of labor standards. And my sense was the average person didn't really care. And it, are you finding that there's an increased awareness and concern about environmental and labor issues in apparel manufacturing, or is it that you have to focus on a fairly narrow segment? You know, I think with all of these movements, they start out small and they become bigger, right? So if we started with organic um, in the 60s or 70s, you would say the average consumer doesn't care until they realize how much better that is for them and what companies that aren't um, using organic are doing. And in that same way, 
I believe that everybody is realizing, and it started with a small group and it's becoming bigger and bigger, that everybody can be an activist, everybody can make a difference. And so that, that idea is becoming bigger, right? And you're seeing it come to life on Instagram right now. You know, there's um, a genocide in part of um, uh, China going on. And um, that is a place where people source cotton, Everlane does not. But from that perspective, consumers are starting to say, hey, we need to hold companies accountable that might be sourcing from there. Um, yeah. So it is much more so that you're, there may be a small group that's becoming a larger group that will become eventually a mass group that is holding companies accountable and steering the direction of where consumers go. Yeah. You know, the other thing I found in my own entrepreneurial experiences related to, particularly related to the environment, is the average consumer doesn't have a very sophisticated model of environmental impact. And they tend to have these knee-jerk reactions like, you know, plastic is bad, whereas actually cotton is probably worse in a lot of in a lot of cases. Um, how is it that you on the one hand do the actual right thing and on the other hand actually communicate the right thing, what the right thing is to consumers with respect to what are probably some false perceptions they have? Yeah, that's a good question. It's like, how do you determine what right is? And then um, oftentimes we're so moved from the consumer market by something that is seems like a um, big deal, but might be more a media moment. Right. So what do we do in that front? You know, I think what we're trying to do is really understand what the right systemic changes we need to make are, mm -hmm. and then ultimately um, make those changes while addressing the short-term needs. We made the move towards plastic early on about three years ago to remove all virgin plastic from our supply chain because we could. We could make that move quickly, and it was also something that people cared about. We're making the shift towards organic cotton, and that's taking us longer. You know, the real impact, carbon, that's you know a 10-year journey, um, but right. it's honestly the most urgent one. It's also just the hardest to move the needle on. So it's this real balancing act, and I would say it's a combination of art and science, um, and sometimes we're going to be wrong, and that's okay too because we just got to push the ball forward um, and then adapt as we uh, move forward. All right. Well, let's go back to 2011 when you first uh, started this thing, and you had this idea. You were working in finance. What, what steps did you take to validate the idea? What kind of swing did you take at it? And what did you do to validate the opportunity? This is such a good question because so many entrepreneurs nowadays, it's sort of an idea and you run with it. And I think that that wasn't the case back when we were starting. It was much more of an iterative process. In that sense, you know, I know many of the people on the West Coast who've started tech companies, whether that's Instagram or Pinterest, and those again, were also iterative ideas. Even Slack itself was an iterative idea. Everlane was born more of that mentality. And the initial concept was rooted in, can we really do better demand planning? Can we create a better retail experience? And so we were trying to figure out, can we use curation or some form of data to determine what products to make and make a brand more efficient that way, ultimately creating less waste. We realized that didn't work, uh, but through that process, we saw what the markups were and it just seemed to validate so clearly that if people could get more, more value, the world has always moved towards convenience and value. And so at that time, it was less necessarily validating will value work and making the ultimate bet that value will work and let's build into that. Um, but it definitely took a couple iterations to land there. Yeah, so, so um, uh, there was a bit of a journey. Did you, did you start 
with the premise of wanting to build a more socially responsibility product? Or did you start with the premise of we want to make this supply chain, this, this process of delivering apparel more efficient in order to deliver better value to the consumer? Or was it really both? It was either almost neither to be to be to to sort of reflect on it. It was how do we create a better customer experience? How do we do right by the yeah. customer? And then we realized that the opportunity wasn't to be more efficient, to get people what they liked faster, and wasn't to necessarily give the lowest price. It was we need to do right by the customer by giving them value and being honest and transparent with them. And so it, yeah. it really was more in that camp. And I've always steered back to customer always, what's right for the customer. Um, and trying to offer that while also balancing, as we said, um, people uh, externally and planet externally. So that sort of balance of what's right for our customer, what's right for our team, what's right for the world. That's that's how I think about it. Yeah. So so maybe just give us a sense of 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 how you can do it. So I I, I just I, I actually was one of your very first customers. I, I and that shirt is still doing just just fine. It's a great gray Oxford shirt that's doing really well. So I went to look today on your website uh, at that shirt. You've lowered your prices, by the way, which is nice since when I bought it, at least as I remember. Um, but but I can buy that shirt for, uh, it's not a wildly different price, say at Banana Republic. You know, it's like somewhere between 60 and $80 uh, for, for that shirt. So um, I suspect Banana is already a pretty efficient operator because they're they're direct they're more or less direct to, to consumer and, and must move a huge amount of, of product. But but how can you offer greater value to the consumer, especially given that in most cases you're going to be smaller than some of the brands you're competing with? Yeah, look, the truth is is that the markup at those places is significantly higher than ours. Um, and how yeah. do we offer it? It is because we don't have the old infrastructure so much they built from scratch that we didn't have to. One. Two, they are running a discount business. Um, you know, 60% yeah. of what they do is discount. So what they're doing is they're really marking up and then marking down and trying to get customers along multiple different value chains. So, that, you know, it's like when you were to buy a ticket on an airplane, uh, you'd ask 10 people and 10 people all pay di 10 different prices. Yeah. They're essentially doing the same thing with a button-down shirt. Whereas from my vantage point and Everlane's vantage point, we're really trying to keep the price the same for everyone and not play the game of marking up just to mark down. So it's yeah, become- Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I was, I was, you know, your price I think on that shirt was $60. I looked on banana and it was 80. But then I realized, no, I would never go on the website and just buy it for 80 unless I were stuck in a, on a business trip and didn't have a shirt. I would go to the outlet store and buy it for 42. And you work that out, it averages out around 60, right? And so, it, it does seem a lot of it is this game of everyday low pricing versus the discounting game. Yeah. Without a doubt. And you're seeing that across America. And in general, I think America is very much a sale mentality. And, you know, that's fine. That's not what we do. And, of course, TJ Maxx is doing uh, incredibly well. And it sort of creates a culture of turning retail into a game. And I do believe there's an right. aspect of building a brand that's we are, you know, connecting with consumers and telling stories. But when you start going down that sale game, it's again, you're playing games with the customer and that's sort of a, that's a lack of transparency from our perspective. Um, I'm Carl Ulrich and this is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Today I'm joined by Michael Preisman, who's the founder and CEO of Everlane. 
Michael, I want to change gears just a little bit and say, you know, I, I commented at the at the top of the the segment that I really liked your name, uh, Everlane, and it seems to me that an apparel uh, brand is is kind of all you got. I mean, it's it's most of what you've got or what you're building. Talk a little bit about how you've thought about brand and what efforts you've made to build the value of that brand. Yeah. So. It's an interesting question because normally when you start in an online business, especially when we started it, it's, you know, so rooted in giving a service and utility retailer um, or some sort of tech service, whereas uh, building brands online was a new idea. I think what we've always been rooted in is understanding what we believe and what is the, you know, what are our guiding principles. The truth is we've never written those down. We have written those down, but in the early days we didn't. It was very much driven towards organically um, this consistent focus on what for us was doing the right thing. Um, and there wasn't, you know, nowadays what you do is, and what we have is you have mission values, brand principles, purpose, you root everything through that. But I do believe that if you look at all great brands in the early days, they almost always start out as an intuitive group of people with a mission um, and a purpose. Uh, and then that morphs into uh, a much bigger company when you can scale that out. Um, and so I'm a big believer in letting the organic guide the principles in the early days. And then when you find what works um, to scale it out and to start actually putting processes around it. A good example of this is in the early days, many brands start to do paid advertising to drive the business. We were very relentless around not doing that because the view was you're doing paid to make up for the fact that you don't have a strong brand and a strong product. So let's actually not leverage the paid side of the business and focus on delivering value to the customer. And if we deliver that value, the customer will talk about us and share it with others. So we were really focused on organic growth um, to make sure that we offered the best for the customer. You know, uh, let me ask you about that because I actually think I heard about you through paid advertising. Uh, that may tell you when it, when it was I became a customer because you advertised a lot on one of the podcasts I listened to, This American Life or something. Uh, did, was that an experiment that you decided didn't work or do you not consider that paid advertising? I wish we spent more on this American life. We only sponsored like two episodes. So ah, no you, might have been on, you might've been on those two episodes and yeah. really we should be, um, we should be doing more on the, on that one. I remember very vividly going back and forth with Iowa Glass's team. This was like six or seven years ago and yeah. literally read it just once or twice it was not more than two okay. times. All right, so it was an experiment, really. You know, that one, I want to go just a little bit deeper on brand. The other thing I noticed, I'm just thinking back to what must have been, you know, six or seven years ago, because it was it was on a podcast. I remember distinctly the day I was out hiking, listening to that podcast. Oh, I'll go check those guys out. And then I bought a shirt. And, um, and I was struck, uh, one of the things I was struck by was uh, just the, 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 how clean and, and well thought out the, web, the website was and the graphic identity. And I wondered whether I'm anomalous or whether your customers do respond to that. Are those real signals of brand? And how much attention did you pay to that kind of stuff? So much attention. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I studied, I didn't study, but I practiced graphic design back in you know high school and college a bit. And it's very much rooted in who we are. We, we were really, really focused on leveraging copy, voice, graphics as a way to tell story rather than the traditional form of just images and pictures. Um, so you are correct that um, we did put an emphasis on that and it was also rooted into a Swiss school of design 
So very much so, I think our customer response to that, the you know, simplicity, the ease, we say easy all the time, how to make things easy. Yeah. I think the customer is looking for convenience and value. Um, so that was just our brand identity and way to bring it to life. Uh, yeah. But I remember even in the early days, one of our graphic designers wanted to add a third font and we, I was, you know, adamant only two fonts because the, you know, once you add a third, that's a lot of dimension you're adding into how you um, come to life. And um, so we've been very focused on fonts and identity. Nice, nice job. It's really nice. In fact, it, it's so nice that I, I, I was working on a startup around that time. I think I used it as one of the exemplars with the graphic designer. So it was really, really good job on that. Um, okay. Well, let's, <laughs> let's now fast forward nine years. Um, uh, there are probably some key chapters in in the story, but but let's talk about more recent events. Are are people buying clothes? Like what's happening with COVID? Then you guys, yeah. People are people are buying lots of things still. You know, it's um, COVID has been without a doubt a challenge. And I think what happened. You know, I remember March 16th so vividly when all of a sudden San Francisco makes its announcements, and, yeah. and we were all working from home, and it just it was this sort of massive amount of uncertainty, not knowing what the next week two weeks, three weeks would be, or even the next year. Um, and so figuring out how to one, pivot the business and manage and go all digital, not just for our customer, but for our team instantly. And then um, really understanding what customers are going to buy. And you're never going to get that perfectly well. Um, but that's the, um, uh, that's been a journey. Um, and I would say we've adapted, uh, but overnight the customer's behaviors have changed because they're no longer really going outside in the same way. So people are still buying clothes. It's a way to, you know, be inspired and find joy in, um, in the day for many people. Um, but it's definitely not the same as it was um, a year ago. So growth is not at the same pace that it was. You know, it's interesting because I would have guessed there'd be two countervailing uh, trends. One is that uh, uh, commerce is shifting online, but the other is that people aren't aren't dressed enough to go outside as much. And so it sounds like on balance, that's a little down for, for the apparel business. Uh, whereas in some other segments of online, just the mere fact that the, the volume moved online drove their business up during this yeah. period. Yeah, without a doubt, for sure. And I think yeah. for people who were primarily retail, we're a digital first business. So of course we've, you know, we, we benefit from that. Um, but the overall apparel segment as a whole is, you know, shrinking this year um, for the for the U.S. as a whole. So talk a bit about about the supply chain issues. Um, it, it, my guess is, I mean, I, I I see some of your factories are in southern China, and that's got to have wreaked havoc. With, with managing your supply chain. Uh, so just talk a little bit about supply chain and about how you responded to the crisis. It's interesting. We started that issue around China, um, not six, well, honestly 12 months earlier because of the tariffs that came into place. Oh. So it really started earlier than that. Um, and we had already moved more than half our supply chain out of China specifically. That doesn't address the fact that across the board, we had issues Everywhere, Vietnam, Sri Lanka was shut down for six weeks. So there were really issues across the board and it was uh, more so cutting back supply and figuring out where we could cut back, where we could get rid of you know, product, how we could release inventory that was coming into the second half and not even knowing what the second half would look like. So this was really an inventory planning exercise, sitting with our production team saying, where is their liability? Where is what in process? And a third of the time we couldn't even get an answer because factories were all closed. 
So it's really an interesting and very stressful time for the team. And, you know, they managed quite well. Um, but I, I definitely uh, hope to never have to deal with that again at that level of intensity. Yeah, but I wonder, uh, where did you find that you could do just fine remotely? I mean, I suspect that you were sending your own people to factories um, to inspect first, first lots and that kind of thing. And you're probably not doing that now. Are, are you finding you can do just as well without the travel? You know, I, I think what you're doing in the first six months, four to six months, is you're leveraging so much built-in equity that we've created by knowing yeah. who you are, knowing how humans work, et cetera. Um, but there's so many aspects of culture that come to life in, in, human, in, in person, and humans are social creatures. So I do sense that we're getting to this point, even though COVID is nowhere near done, that people are starting to ache for some of that in-person connection. Um, and the ability to get work done as we bring on new people is challenging. Um, and we don't all work in as well in a digital first environment, especially uh, with product. So I was in the office today and um, with a group of, you know, six to eight of us. And it was a world of difference in how, how we accomplished um, yeah. and home success. So I don't know what the future looks like, but I think in person is very, very critical. Yeah. Well, we just have a couple minutes left, but I want to I want to turn to one last topic. I I looked you up on Crunchbase, and you're you're they they don't have I don't think they have valid data. They say you've raised a total of one point five million dollars in equity, but I also saw a Series D, uh, which I I think are very rarely for one point five million. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about financing and about how what it's like being a you know a retailer who's still you know, you're not out of the woods entirely, right? And and what that's like to to have to raise capital or to be raising capital in a in a period of crisis like this. Yeah, well, so it's a good question. So the brand has not raised uh, a significant amount historically relative to our revenue because we really were focused on driving success through the brand and through profit. But we just announced last week, late last week, an $85 million investment. Um, which we're really excited about because it's damn hard to raise in the midst of a pandemic, but also it helps set us up for that next stage where we have to do the investments that we didn't make before into um, the people team and all the processes around that, our business foundations, uh, starting to build brand awareness and of course, sustainability. Uh, so that next next chapter is really unlocked through that investment. Um, and I, I believe brands need to, you know, you sort of have stepping growth stages and to get to each next step, you sometimes need it either to be incredibly profitable or have capital on, you need cash on the books to be able to make some big bets. And that's what we're excited to do. Yeah, well, Michael, I, I, I did Google it and I saw, I saw that 85 million. I thought, well, I want to be a little careful about it, congratulating him on that uh, in case that's, you know, some, some, some bot that's actually delivering fake news to me. But no. so I'm glad to hear that that happened. And uh, it's real fake news. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Michael, remarkably, we're, we're out of time. Where, where can our listeners go to keep up with you and to keep up with the company? Uh, you know, everlane.com and just come buy some things and see what we're launching next. But, uh, you know, you can follow me on LinkedIn and, you know, I'm posting regularly there as well as uh, Everlane or on our Instagram. All right. Well, I recommend everyone go check out the website. It's really nice. And I think that I think you've got the pricing about right. I, 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 I got to say back seven years ago, it felt just a little high. Today, I looked and I said, wow, those are good prices. Those are good values. So I, I'm going to I'm going to buy some more stuff. 
Um, thanks so much for joining me. Super interesting. Great. Thank you very much, Carl. Enjoy the day. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, you'll hear a great discussion I had with Mason Arnold, who's the founder of CC's Veggie Company. This is Launchpad Business Radio, Sirius XM. 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.